This misframed effort does itself no favors by claiming it's nonfiction bona fide so prominently to its promotion and opening credits and then flogging them so repeatedly. That's Brent Simon of AV Club. Hey, that should be my club, the AV Club. Come on. He's talking about Infinite Storm. Uh, that's a new film in theaters right now starring Naomi Watts. We're also talking about, for our new films, The Outfit, starring Mark Rylance with a bunch of gangsters. Old movie, 15th anniversary this December one of my favorite movies of all time, There Will Be Blood, from Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Daniel Day-Lewis. And as our wild card, going to love this, folks. Remember I teased this before? I said, hey, she's coming on. Mayim Bialik, that's right. Yes. She's got a new film out, uh, As They Made Us. She's obviously been on Jeopardy, Blossom. I mean, this was... Chris, you were fired up for this. I'm just trying to think of big-name guests that we've had under my tutelage. And tutelage is a weird word to say there, because I haven't your helped you at all. Under my jurisdiction, and uh, I, I, I'm trying to think of a bigger name that we've had. I feel like, I mean, we we, we kind of cheated, and you interviewed some people with MLB Network, and we replayed them here. So, Kevin like, Coster, yeah. guess, guess that we've actually booked. This is as good as, like, she's, and I'm excited about it. It was a fun interview. No, yeah, she's awesome. And uh, it's a terrific movie. Like I said, we're going to talk about that movie in Jeopardy, all the rest of it. I think her and Tony Hale. You were excited about Tony Hale. That was a pretty That's good That's true. Tony Hale was well, big. So. Yep. Those two have been mm-hmm. good for us as well. But don't worry. Authors are coming soon. Next couple of weeks, we're going to go back to the well. Age of Cage. Keith Phipps yes. is the author of a great new book about Nicolas Cage, which I just read. And my man Chuck Klosterman. I read his book, The 90s. He's coming up in a couple we're weeks. Back. So authors. So we're authors back. Authors are back. Don't worry. Okay, we're going movie stars. <laughs> then we're getting back to the authors. Don't worry about that. Uh, as always, thanks for checking out Cinephile. You can follow me at Adnan Esberg or Cinephile Pod. Thanks to Ben Lyons, who was terrific last week. Uh, I know we're all tired of talking about the hitch slaps. We're not going to do that. But a couple of the thoughts here about the the Oscars, which we did not discuss. One, as Cody was following along seeing all of my picks, he noted that I went against my boy. Yes, I have to mention, Riz Ahmed is now an Academy Award winner. I'm so pumped. Riz is one of my favorite actors. He won for a short film called The Long Goodbye. My reasoning was, I read Tarek Khan, who said that normally, short films, which are just one scene, don't do well. Normally, the, the Oscar that wins for Best Live Short has a beginning, middle, and an ending within 15 minutes. He's wrong. I'll never trust that guy again. Riz Ahmed wins because the Oscar of The Long Goodbye is literally just one scene which a bunch of terrorists come and beat up some brown people. So bottom line is, Riz Ahmed, congratulations on winning an Oscar. I see lots of cool pictures, him and his mom, the Oscar, that kind of stuff. Another one for you. We were denied, Cody. You know, normally you get the honorary Oscar. Samuel L. Jackson won the Irving G. Thalberg Award, the honorary Oscar. We didn't get It was just like that. announced, though. It was yeah. just like announced. Well, the word, my favorite thing is always you know, the career achievement winner, it's Tom Hanks, and you get 10 minutes of Tom Hanks movies, and he comes out, and it's awesome. So the fact we did not get a rip of Snakes on a Plane and Pulp Fiction and all the great stuff Samuel Jackson's done, we got robbed by that, too. So that's one more reason to be annoyed. And also, for my friend Mark Simon, who never misses an episode of Cinephile, check out this article in the New York Times. Representation or stereotype deaf viewers are torn over CODA. They're hesitant to criticize the Oscar-winning film because it showcases deaf actors and lies, but some find its hearing perspectives frustrating or even upsetting. So as I've said all Mm. along, I thought it was a very average movie. I said this when it first was released. Uh, and then the fact it won Best Picture, I've gone on record as saying it's the worst Best Picture since Crash Be Broke Back Mountain. That's all. You weren't afraid to criticize it, even though it's kind of like, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want people to think you're being like, you're just like, no, I'm judging it as a movie. Yeah. Not that great. Exactly. And as I said, it's great to see rules given to deaf actors. I hope now we'll get better movies involving deaf actors. But really interesting article here. And particularly one of the points is that, you know, they said there's a lot of harmful messages from the film. You know, speaking of the, one of the first aspects is that there's such a dependence upon the daughter of the movie, Ruby, Amelia Jones, and then Frank and Jackie, the parents. So she's always the one interpreting what's happening. And early on, 
you know, she, they're always kind of looking at her for advice. But as this article points out, there are professional interpreters at school. That's been mandated ever since the Americans with Disabilities Act passed in 1990. So sometimes in a pinch, yes, you use sign language, but he said there's no mention of the fact deaf people use lots of other methods, video relay services, mobile phone apps, lip reading, or just plain old pencil and paper. The story of this movie is they can't let their daughter leave because they're so dependent upon her, but it actually sends a bad message. It makes it sound like deaf people need to have hearing people around them. No, they don't actually. They can live their lives with all these other things. Deaf people are extremely independent and competent. So it's a really fascinating article. And uh, you know, credit to Sean Heater, who, who won the Oscar. You know, listen, this is a person who, they said, you could tell this person is not deaf. They go, like, watch the movie, like, oh, this is a hearing person who's making a movie for deaf people. It'd be nice to see a movie done from a different showcase because the way that they're telling the story, you can tell that it's so obvious the movie was not written by a deaf person. Um, a couple other things, too. This is really important. There's one gesture at one point where um, the father wants to know what Ruby sounds like. He puts his hand on her throat as she sings. Well, that might seem like an emotional gesture to hearing people, Holcomb said that for deaf people, the act carries no significance. The vibration would feel similar to that of a phone ringtone and wouldn't clue in Frank about whether his daughter's voice was beautiful. In fact, the gesture reminded one used in speech therapy to try and teach deaf people to speak, a fraught effort that can be embarrassing, difficult, often end in failure. These sessions are known to be traumatizing to many people. They also have one you know, critical scene where the guy finally says a word. He says, go. And it's supposed to be this big emotional moment. But they said, that's, again, very counterproductive. It makes it sound like uh, that makes using one's voice seem more meaningful than using ASL, American Sign Language. And yeah. speaking feels out of character after Ruby and her father have communicated with each other in ASL up until then. It's almost like a character that can't walk. And all of a sudden, there's one scene they take a big step. And you go, oh, my God. They go, no, that's actually not the triumphant right. moment. You're, you're, it's actually, that, you're, you're completely missing the point of the movie. Just because yeah. the guy says one word, it doesn't that's actually work. So it's a, it's a really interesting article. Go check it out the New York Times. I thought it was really well done. And uh, go ahead, Cody. But overall, 16 for 23 you were. I tracked you. Yes. This is an off year, right? As far as predicting, you expect better from yourself. Yeah, the best I ever did was a couple years ago. I went 21 of 24. It used to be one extra category. Uh, normally, I'm looking at about 80%, 90% in that range. I mean, 90 is pretty high. It's 21 of 24. I was shocked, even yeah. I got that well. Normally, I'm in the 80% range. 16 of 23, and things about 70%. I went with a few too many upsets. You know, cinematography, yeah. I thought myself. I went with Mank. It's black and white. I just did not expect Dune to have that kind of run. I thought they would share the wealth, and instead, Dune, very much like Mad Max, picked up all those Oscars. What category did they get? Did they get rid of? Uh, I think they just combined the two. I think it used to be sound mixing and sound effects editing, something like that. They just combined it into best sound. It's just one category okay. now. Cool. Uh, which I went with West Side Story because musicals normally do well in that category. I was wrong. It was Dune. So, yeah, 70% success rate. My apologies to Chris Whittingham because when he texts me, he's like, I need your picks. I listen to the pie. I need your picks. I text him. Like, All right, next year, I'm just going chalk. I'll go with DraftKings. <laughs> I'll go with chalk. And then, you know what? We'll come out ahead and everybody will be happy. Um, it was it was a fun night for the Academy, though, as they always say. Let's get to the actual movies. And before we do, we have to mention the fact that Bruce Willis is stepping away from acting due to uh, aphasia. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I did not know about this illness where um, you literally lose yourself of your speech and cognitive abilities and, and all the rest of it. So it's horrible, horrible news. Bruce Willis has made a lot of bad movies for the last 10 years, which immediately led people to speculate he has probably had this illness for a while. And maybe it was him saying, hey, listen, let me make as many movies as I can before I can't. Maybe it's those around him him. I'm not sure. I don't want to judge on that, but I, I think it's clear that he was taking as many movies as he could because he knew the end was near, and now he's stepping away from acting. He will no longer be appearing in movies, will 
no longer be uh, probably ever be really seen publicly, which is very, very sad. Nicholas Cage, again, we're talking to the Age of Cage author next week. He was very honest. He said when he was going through financial ruin, he did have to take every movie that he could. He goes, listen, I still gave my all. Like, I wasn't mailing it in. But, yes, I did have to take movies for the paycheck. So Bruce Willis took some movies for the paycheck. Hey, that happens. But it gets us, of course, to thinking the top five, which I listened to David Sampson on the Levitard show. i got to give Sampson credit. Who's I don't that? like to do this. Yeah, we, uh, Cody very memorably, by the way, sticking up for me, which is fantastic. I very much appreciate Chris I taking the task. After he after he questioned my credentials, Cody just brought the hammer I down. I mean, it's just, it's just don't get me started on him. I'm, I'm afraid of him, everyone's saying. Like, I, 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 I love being afraid of him. I, if I don't have to talk to him, it's a win for us all. <laughs> So uh, my brother and I do not share much uh, commonality in movies. There will be blood we're talking about later today. It's one of my favorite movies. It's like one of his least favorite movies. He hates the movie. He thinks it's awful. Wow. So he loves the Marvel movies, right? Loves the MCU, the cinematic universe. Obviously, I don't care for superhero movies. I mention this because our top three Bruce Willis movies are exactly the same. Number one is Die Hard. You can't do better than John McClane. You Kaye. Number two is Pulp Fiction, which again doesn't feel like a Bruce Willis movie. It's a supporting role. Better than Pulp Fiction. Die Hard's better than Pulp Fiction. As a wow. Bruce Willis movie, for sure. Because oh, Bruce I Willis, guess that's right? true. Pulp Fiction right. is a supporting role. Like, I used to think of it more as a Sam Jackson movie, a John Travolta yeah. movie. But he's still great in it. We'll give it to number two. Uh, and number three is The Sixth Sense. I hear dead people. I mean, just That's, remarkable performance. I see dead people. I, I see dead people. Yeah, I hear That's dead fun. people. I'm still thinking about Coda. <laughs> I see dead people. By the way, That's Mike... A- Mike my line that, from that's Michael my favorite, the by the way. That's my, my favorite. That's my favorite. That's your favorite of Bruce Willis? Six Sense, yeah. Yeah, Six Sense is my number three. And then after that, I think you can go towards Unbreakable and some of his other work. But I do have to give Sam some credit, though. He mentioned Blind Date, which is a terrific 1987 movie. John Larroquette, who I love because you know I'm a big Night Court guy. They're rebooting Night Court, by the way. Larroquette's coming back. Dan Fielding. So I do have to give him credit. He did mention Blind Date. Have you ever seen it? 1987, Larroquette's awesome Bruce Willis romantic comedy. Uh, so once again, sad news there involving Bruce Willis. But go back and watch some of his films. And I believe TNT. I was airing a Die Hard marathon. Stu Goss, of course, in his top five, all the Die Hard movies, which is uh, <laughs> completely understandable. Let's get to some new movies, shall we? Infinite Storm. When a climber gets caught in a blizzard, she encounters a stranded stranger and must get them both down the mountain before nightfall. It is directed by Malgorazata Zumauska. Um, and the writers are Joshua Rollins and Pam Bales. It's based on the life of of Pam Bale. So it's based on a true story. So Naomi Watts is an excellent actress. I mean, you know her uh, off the stage because she was married to Liev Schreiber and she's, you know, you see her all about town, very beautiful woman. But as an actress, I mean, she's made some pretty fearless movies and she seems to be cornering the market here and playing people suffering through horrible, horrible physical ailments. Uh, she was great in a film called The Impossible, was nominated for an Oscar. I was actually hoping she'd win that year. I can't remember who she was nominated against, but that was about a family dealing with a tsunami and it's literally her and her son, you know, fighting for their life. That was after that tsunami hit in uh, East Asia a few years ago. Remarkable performance. I mean, she just goes for it. And this is another one of those movies. Rex Reed of The Observer says, it is well photographed, the epic adventure is harrowing, and Nemi Watts earns more deserved applause for being one of the gamest actors in films today. If you like your survival movies, you're going to like Infinite Storm. Quite simply, it's a bare-bones plot, and that's why I wasn't more bullish on the film. What I like about it is Nemi Watts. Again, fearless performance. She plays a rescue worker. Um, you know, I don't know how much of this is special effects, but she looks like she's freezing the entire time, you know, blood everywhere, draped everywhere, and she's, she's physically trying to help this guy to safety. His name is Billy Howell. He plays John. She finds him in the midst of this, one quite say a blizzard. Basically, they're just in the middle of nowhere, but then the snow starts ramping up, et cetera, and he can't move. So she's picking him up, and he's injured, but he, he also appears to be on drugs. So she's like, I, I can't really help this guy because it's like, you know, normally you're trying to carry someone to safety, but it's awful. Like, it's so vivid the way they show people in torture. Like, his feet are literally blue because of frostbite. She's taking the socks off, putting new socks on, the gloves, the hands, face is all curdled blood. But she's carrying this guy, right? Like, just dragging him there. 
And then when he like kind of wakes up and comes to his senses, he's like, no, no, no. And he's just running away from her. It's like, what is this guy's problem? Like, dude, she just saved your life. It's, it's one of the biggest problems of the movie. The guy's a total douche. Like, Cody, I'm not going to recommend this movie to you. I'm giving it too many beliefs to be clear. But if you watch this movie, you'd be like, okay, so this woman who's a rescue worker is saving this guy. And on several occasions, he does not want her help. And it's freaking minus 20 and you're haven't eaten in a day. Like, why are you still helping him? Like, enough. This is why I could never be a good Samaritan. I don't understand uh, the, the selflessness of these people, like the altruism. He's on drugs. He clearly wants to die. He doesn't care. So I'm like, huh, dude, I tried to help you. I carried you down half a mountain. If you don't want to roll down the rest of the way, good luck to you. But it's based on a true story. And if you like these survival type stories, you will enjoy it. A couple of the reviews. Uh, Amy Nicholson, I don't think a lot of the ideas in it land that much, but I enjoyed it as a sort of physical exercise. Yes, if you like the physicality of it, maybe you'll enjoy it. But uh, I wasn't crazy about it. Are you big on adventure movies or adventure in general? Are you a, a snow kind of guy? No. Over-the-top action, no. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, especially being a South Florida guy, like I couldn't imagine. Unless it goes the other way, you go, oh, man, I wish I was in Aspen. But I, I couldn't see you being the kind of guy that you know goes to these types Best of movies. Best movie so. ever in Aspen, Dumb and Dumber. That's where I'm at. I mean, that's... I mean, we're Talking about a place called Aspen. <laughs> There's no disputing that. That is a great answer. That is a good way to close up shop on Infinite Storm. Next up, The Outfit. An expert tailor must outwit a dangerous group of mobsters in order to survive a fateful night. It's directed by Graham Moore, whose work I'm not familiar with, but I like it a lot. He also co-wrote the script. It's written by Jonathan McClane. It stars Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance is an actor who won the Best Supporting Actor Award for Bridge of Spies, which I remember when I saw that movie, I thought it was a metaphorical title, but it actually does end up with a bridge of spies. And it's one of those movies that you thought would be better than it was considering the talent. It stars Tom Hanks, good as it gets. It's written by the Coen brothers and it's directed by Steven Spielberg. And if the movie was kind of just came and went, the only real notable aspect of it was Mark Rylance was great. Like, who is this guy? This British actor is excellent movie. And he won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. He'd done stage for a lot of years, and now he's kind of vaulted into the movies. I was hoping Mark Ruffalo would win that year for Spotlights. It was interesting. When they said Mark I'm like, Mark Ruffalo? No, Mark Rylance. I'm like, okay, that's fine. It happens. Um, but Rod's a really good actor, and this is the kind of movie you watch just if you like Mark Rylance. It's very sparse. It starts out with voiceover narration, and he's got that very clipped British delivery, you know, very well-dressed. This is like 1930s Chicago, and um, he describes himself as a cutter, not a tailor. A tailor is somebody who just sews buttons on you. A cutter is one who actually puts together the fabrics and such. So I really enjoyed the first 10 minutes. It's one of Gene Siskel's great compliments to movies. He goes, you want to show movies where people are at work. It's one of the reasons why he loved Big Night so much. So the first 10 minutes of the outfit, you really see a man at work. What does a cutter do? What does an expert tailor do? You see it. And then all of a sudden you realize he's working for a bunch of mobsters, or is he? Or is it just that he sells clothes to sharp-dressed mobsters? Is he is he filtering money? Is he doing all that kind of stuff? We're not totally sure. So you see one of the mobsters show up, and they're, they're convinced that they have a rat. So this is not a particularly original story, right? Mobsters, there's always a rat. Who's yeah. a rat, et cetera? Go from there. And early on, I thought the film was a little weak because the supporting cast isn't as strong as Rylance. He's such a good actor because he's so subtle, and he's just so quiet at all times, and he kind of gives you a little bit with a flicker of an eye or a smile or just his delivery. But the other actors, I thought, these guys aren't particularly good. So this screamed to me, they probably got like literally a $2 million budget. You got Mark Rylance, and you go, okay, who else can we get? Here's a couple of Johnnies in the street. Okay, These guys aren't particularly good actors, but whatever. So I didn't think the performances by Dylan O'Brien as Richie or Johnny Flynn as France are particularly strong. But... Zoe Deutsch, who is a very good actress, she shows up in the movie, and she is somebody who's actually working um, at the, the clothing shop there with him. So this is the kind of movie where I would be, you know, foolish to give away too much of the plot other than just saying nothing is as it seems. There's about four twists in the movie. 
I didn't. I huh. predicted. I predicted one or two of them. I was like, okay, I think that's definitely going to happen. Like, I could see where this is going. But I was shocked by the last twist because I thought. Once you give me about three twists, I'm like we're probably pretty much near the end. But I'm like, no, no, there's one more twist to go. And and one might argue one twist too many. But listen, if you love a good Agatha Christie type murder mystery, uh, if you're wondering how somebody who seems to be a good man is going to get out of the way, you know, appearances can be deceiving, that kind of stuff. I think you'll really enjoy the movie. It's modest. You know, again, it's a very small budget. It literally takes place. It's like a two-hour movie in one location. So this is not a particularly visually strong movie, but. It's mainly Mark Rylance to look forward to, and I think a very clever script and some good work from Zoe Deutsch. A couple of reviews for you. Adam Mullins Khatib of uh, Chicago Reader. Deutsch is charming but isn't given enough to work with, and Rylance offers a strong performance but is countered by uneven acting from the ensemble cast. There you go. And an overall lack of development for most of the characters. Bilge Ibiri, who's a great critic, New York Magazine slash Volter. I like that uh, Cody grabbed him. The outfit is a movie cut and tailored to Mark Rylance's quivering intonations to his pursed lips and fragile presence. Exactly. He does not look like a movie star. You would not I'm think to yourself, I'm yeah. going to build a movie around Mark Rylance, but the guy I'm still, I'm still caught up on you saying that people like movies with people at work. Is that true? No, Gene Siskel said not enough movies show people at work. He goes, you see everybody huh. got to be a bus driver. But then the whole movie is with him and his wife and his daughter. He's like, no, no, you want to actually see him driving a bus. So in a Bronx tale, huh. it's important that De Niro is a bus driver. You actually see what it's like when a guy drives a bus. He goes, most movies, you never actually know what the guy's job is. It's like, he is this, but you never actually, unless he's a lawyer. Lawyers, they would show all the time. Here's a lawyer, here's a courtroom, et cetera. That's, a, that's just something I never really thought about. I like yeah. that. More movies to show people at work. I, I always remember he said that years ago. Uh, one more review here from the outfit. Gary M. Kramer of Salon.com. A cheap, that's kind of like a shot. Like I, You can tell they didn't have much money. A cheap, <laughs> talky, well, yeah, it's a bunch of guys talking, and stagey chamber drama that thinks it is clever. <laughs> what a dick. <laughs> Violence is fine underplay. Kind of save the outfit from being second rate. Like, you know how proud he was. He's like, it's about a tailor. I'm going to call it second rate. Like, yeah. Gary, bring the lumber. I can't say agree with that. I'm going to give the outfit three Maple Leafs. I'll give two Maple Leafs to Infinite Storm. We're going to come back and talk about There Will Be Blood. But right now, let's get to our special guest. Yes. Ryan Bialik has a new movie out. Check it out. A pleasure to talk to Mayim Bialik right now. As they made us, there's a new film in theaters in VOD on April 8th. Let's jump right in. I thought it was a terrific movie. You know, with movies like this, Mayim, which are dealing with grieving and loss, and, you know, it can be a little heavy, and there certainly are moments that are very dramatic, but I love the fact you included so many moments of humor. So let's start with the potty humor. The bathrooms, particularly, the great line which is given in two bathroom scenes, is that based on a real incident? Yeah, my my father, if he ever, we didn't really have a lot of scatological things in my childhood. My my mother was raised very religious. And so we didn't talk about certain things. But if there was ever an accidental passing of gas, my father used to say he actually used to say, did you see that elephant that just walked through? And like, I don't know. I just always thought that was very funny. So there's a variety of that. There's nothing that I'll get a bigger laugh out of my wife than anything involving flatulence. So if I tell her, hey, you're going to watch this movie. She's like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, trust me, there's a couple of good fart jokes. She's like, oh, I'm in, I'm in, I don't care what it is, we're going to go. And like I said, it, it's obviously very powerful in dealing with someone getting older and having to deal with those challenges. Was this, obviously, this is a passion project for you, writing, directing, producing? Is this something you went through yourself? Um, I, yes, my father passed away seven years ago. And so there's a, kind of a, a traditional year of, of mourning in, in traditional Judaism. And after that, I started writing. Um, so it's not autobiographical in that not everything happened. Many things are, you know, completely made up. 
but the notion of growing up in a complicated house um, with mental illness, with addiction, those things um, I did draw from, from my childhood and, and that of other people who grew up similarly, but also the notion of kind of like uh, exploring the sibling relationship, you know, especially when one child is called on more than the other. It often happens, you know, for most of history to the daughters of families. Um, I was interested in exploring that relationship and I do, I, I come from an ethnic family. So um, there's a lot of complexity about roles there as well. Yeah, I love the fact that it was really authentic. As you said, this is clearly somebody who knows Judaism, who understands at the funeral when there's Hebrew being spoken and certain prayers, et cetera. Like, I thought that was, it was important, right? It goes back to the whole concept of to make something universal, to make it specific. So just because this is about a Jewish family, clearly the capital J, is something that I think all people can relate to. Yeah, and I think, you know, the feedback I've gotten is that people who come from from families where emotions are discussed freely and loudly um, really understand this kind of dynamic. And, you know, um, I, I think that that does speak to a lot of people. And I think, you know, just, again, the, the complexity that families can be difficult, there can be challenges, and it can be painful, but there's also humor and love. And it's trying to separate that out that can be the cause of so much of our strife as adults cast is terrific, particularly Candace Bergen. Uh, how long have you known her? What was it like casting her? I worked on Murphy Brown. I did an episode right after Beaches came out. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't know that she remembered me from that, but but she did. And she was very moved by the script. And, um, you know, she was concerned that she wasn't Jewish and the character is. And I, I reassured her that my mother was thrilled, you know, that, that my mother would, would have loved to be considered passing as a Gentile, which in the 1940s was a, a thing. So my mother was thrilled with Candace Bergen being cast as the mother. Um, and, you know, her, her performance, I, I, I really think is exceptional. Um, uh, I've had a lot of people ask questions about certain aspects of her, but overwhelmingly the, the, kind of sternness and the irritability with her position in life and then her simultaneously like being able to express love and affection for her husband like that complexity I think is she handles it so so well and I just I really she breaks my heart every time when I when I watch this no question like when I watch a film like Ordinary People as great as it is I just think Mary Tyler Moore's character is so much the mother of from hell I'm like you know I need to see some some, some love like it's just it's it's just too much at times for me at least as yeah. great as that film is so I love the fact with, with Candace Bergen's character yes she can be overbearing towards her daughter and you know flirting with her paramour and the relationship with her husband but at the same time there's no doubt she's loving there's no doubt she's doing there's no doubt she's involved like there's 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 positive and negative to her character I thought her best scene particularly was at the birthday the way she was like no you gotta eat some cake like damn like if this was my last birthday, I'd be eating some cake. And you could see yeah. that frustration, that stubbornness coming out amidst all the love. Absolutely. And, and I think, yeah, I really didn't want to caricature, especially any female characters, because that often happens. Um, I didn't want her to be the caricature of the naggy Jewish mom. And, uh, you know, and I, my mom isn't that. My mom is a lot of things. And, you know, all the, all the women that I know, um, there are variations of different. So, you know, I, I wanted her um, to also bring her own personality and her own presentation to it. As they made us to the film, we're talking to Maya Bialik. Again, the film is available April 8th uh, in theaters in VOD. Simon Halberg, different role for him. Maybe he's done some drama. I just haven't seen a lot of it. I know him as a, as a comedic actor. Was he really happy to play someone like this, which uh, is a, a against type, I would say? Um, yeah, I mean, he did Florence Foster Jenkins, which he was phenomenal in. Um, you know, I, I was working with Simon at the time that my father passed. So he knew my family. He knew a lot of my story. Um, you know, but even as a comedian, Simon is such a fine actor. And I honestly wrote this kind of hoping 
you know, that someday I might get to offer this kind of role to him. And I couldn't believe that he said yes. Um, and he was just such a trooper. All the actors were, we were a very low budget film, which means there's a lot of things that, you know, like not being able to guarantee air conditioning when it's a hundred degrees out. I, you know, that's just what it was like. Um, so they were all really just kind of troopers on a, a practical level. But um, I just think Simon is, I think he's phenomenal. And I just, he tells so many stories with his face, you know, he's phenomenal. Yeah, and I don't know Diana Agron's work, but I thought she was great as as the lead, so to speak. Yeah. What has she done? People know her from Glee, is what most people know her from. She was blonde in Glee, um, but um, she she specifically does small films. She does independent films. She was in Shiva Baby recently. She brings a, a lot of a lot of beauty to this role. Um, she she has to do a lot of juggling, you know, emotionally the the character, and I think she handles it so well. And again, all that complexity I think comes out. Yeah, particularly as a working mom, the scene where she's trying to get the kids breakfast and then dad shows up to go take them to the zoo. It's like, okay, yeah, I, I, it's, you yep. know, it's, it, it is that stereotype, right? Like, fun dad just comes to get to take him out, but mom's grinding it out and doesn't get respect for that. I thought it was a really well, and, smart and, way of illuminating. And I think that. also, you know, I, I am divorced um, in, in real life. And it's also not so much that my ex husband gets to be fun dad, it's just that he happens to be a more together person than I am. And so that's also, th that also sometimes happens. Like, he does, he always has snacks. Like, he, and I'm always like, oh my gosh, I forgot to pack things. So I also wanted to show, again, I didn't want to do the caricature of the like, you know, it's not just that he's fun, it's that he's got his shit together for whatever reason, you know? And yeah. that's part of their dynamic too, you know? Yeah, the way she says, you have snacks? He's like, of course you do. Yes. Like, you know, you're the guy who would have snacks prepared, ready to go. I'm like, okay, cool. He doesn't hit uh, Everything goes great for him. <laughs> uh, Dustin Hoffman's obviously one of our great actors, you know, two-time Academy Award winner, and he's so great in the film. I thought it was such a, a nice reminder of what a great actor he is. Obviously, he has not been in movies as much recently because of, uh, you know, some issues, uh, as they would say, outside the playing field. But was there any issues to casting him, or how did that go? Um, no. I mean, you know, for me, um, you know, he, he loved this script and um, wanted to bring so much of himself to it. And... Um, we were very grateful, you know, that he um, wanted to to do this and he's doing two other films now. So, um, you know, he's um, he is a busy man and absolutely has a work ethic as if he's 25. Like, you know, um, he's incredibly efficient and professional. And um, many of our crew took the job to work with him. And we just we had a beautiful time with him. Yeah, I've gone back and seen some of his films. Like Kramer versus Kramer to me is like one of the great films ever. Might be his best He's, performance. It's like, yeah. I was wondering for you particularly as a writer, producer, director, was he giving you suggestions or was it more kind of like, is it collaborative or what was it like specifically with, with Dustin? I mean, what it's like, I think, you know, for me with all these actors is I'm open to hearing anybody's requests, needs, desires, or changes. Um, they happen to be pretty much happy with the, the general structure of things. Dustin actually asked a lot of questions and wanted me to explain a lot of things that I wanted or that I, you know, um, sought to do. Um, he did add some things. I mean, like very small, adorable, fun things that he added. Um, Candace also, if something wasn't working, I would rework it for her, um, there were times with Diana and Simon where they really felt they needed more words, different words. Um, so I was really open to that. And, you know, for me, like as, as a director, it, it has to be the story that these actors are telling, you know, it's, it's, it's my story. If it, if I'm the one directing it, it's my story if I wrote it. Um, but I didn't want a reenactment of my life, you know, and that's why it's not autobiographical. And there are many things that happened in real life that they perform completely differently than they actually happened. Um, that's because I, I trust these actors, you know, I trust them very much. And um, 
and that that was a wonderful learning experience for me. Yeah, I think it's why you have to say semi-autobiographical. Otherwise, people go, Mime, I didn't ever know that happened. Mime, which character is that? You know, it's not like Belfast. I'm just, yeah. I mean, I, I don't even like saying semi-autobiographical because I feel like it, it makes people start thinking and turning and asking questions and, you know, out of respect, I guess, for my family and my own experience. Um, you know, it's based on my life and a lot of people's lives, you know, is kind of how I see it. Yeah, it's a terrific film. I encourage everyone to check out As They Made Us in theaters and VOD. More films coming? Now that you've done it, you're bit by the bug now? Writing, producing, directing? I mean, you've already been starring. I have, I have more stories to tell, that's for sure. Um, but, um, you know, for now, I'm juggling finishing season two of Call Me Cat and, and juggling Jeopardy. And I have kids who are 13 and 16, and that's a lot for now. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, well, how has the Jeopardy yeah, experience been? It? Mine be Alex Breakdown. I should mention that, too. Absolutely. Plug the podcast. We love the podcasting world. Um, the Jeopardy experience must be remarkable. I, I can't imagine uh, how stressful it may have been going into it. I can't imagine the pressures of it, but I also can't imagine how rewarding it's been. How, how has that kaleidoscope of yeah, emotions it, been for you? It's incredibly joyful. I mean, as an actor and as a trained scientist who's a science communicator, it's wonderful to be able to, you know, to communicate information, to, to highlight our, these incredible contestants. And the days at Jeopardy, they fly by because I just, it's fun. It's super fun. And wearing heels is not comfortable. But if that's the worst thing about my 12-hour days, then I think we're okay. How many shows in a day do you tape? Is it like five shows? Yeah, we do five in a day. So I, I get the clues and, you know, meet with the writers. Then I get my face and hair put on. And then uh, we do five shows, yeah. How much input do you have in the questions? Do you ever say, hey, listen, that... Zero. Yeah. That, <laughs> not my that's job. figure. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I, mean. I could imagine if you say, you know what, guys, this feels more like a $400 rather than a $200. No, you do not walk into the Jeopardy with any of your own ideas for questions. They've got a fine oiled machine over there and they have incredible writers and researchers. I just show up, try and pronounce things right and try and, again, highlight our wonderful contestants. It's like I think what Michael J. Fox said about acting. He's like, show up, know your lines, don't bump into the furniture. If you can nail that, then we're Pretty happy much. to have you. Uh, great stuff. Mind Bialik, once again, as they made us in theaters and in VOD, I encourage everyone to check out the film. It's excellent, and congratulations on all your other projects. Thrilled for your success. Thank you so much. Take care. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks so much to Maya Bialik. I realized, and afterwards I texted Cody, I should have said, hey, what do you think of the slap? But as we're airing this now, we did that interview last week. Like By day four, it already felt a little old, so a week later, yeah. I really would have felt. I mean, what it, but I don't know. I, I, you I think we would have gotten a hot take from her? That's true. At the other day, what should I we think, have said? It's an unfortunate moment. I'd like to move on. Check out my movie. I would like to bring 
I don't think enough is being said because uh, I actually that is wrong. Enough is being said about this. It's all people are talking about. Yeah. But I don't think enough is being said about. Let's. We, how about give it up for Chris Rock? Yeah. How about him handling himself the way he did? Because apparently the cops were behind there, like we're ready to go, and he's like, no, I'm not pressing charges. Like he could have made this worse for Will Smith. He could have taken even more attention away. It's pretty, and you know, in that moment, he probably hated Will Smith. Like you just did that to me. And it was just, I just think it, that was a real class act from Chris Rock there, honestly. Like, I know in the moment he handled, handled it with grace, but even afterwards, the emotion, like, I'm just, it, this is such a, it ends up being such a win for Chris Rock. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Listen, financially, the tickets are sold out on concert, even though he said, And I'm listen, glad about that. Right, yeah. absolutely. And even though he said, listen, I'm not going to talk about it. Like, I'm still processing it, i.e., I'm waiting for HBO to give me $10 million, then I'll do a one-hour stand-up special just roasting Will Smith. I don't, I don't think he's being disingenuous, by the way. I do think he's like, I'm just right. processing it. And I do want to get the writers together. And then we're going to roast him when I want to do it in a really smart, sensible, yeah. funny way. Not emotional. Right. <laughs> but to your point, I mean, in that moment, this guy makes his living with his brains, right? He's so witty. He's so quick. He could have come back and it, it just annihilated Will Smith. Could have destroyed him instead. No, no. I'll pause. And you're right. Even after you cross the stage, you could have gone, you know what? Yeah, get him. Cops, go get yeah. him. Screw this guy. I'm ruining Leap his that guy. Yeah, yeah. Go get that guy. But he's like, no. Even in that moment, he's still like, no, nope, not pressing charges. Real, real back and forth there, right? Some people say in the academy asked him to leave. They're saying, no, actually, he was not asked to leave. Somebody suggested. Yeah, who knows? Who knows what really happened there? And now all the rocks are coming out. I saw some clip of like a Tony Rock. I yes. guess his brother's a comedian. He's just like giving his two cents. It's like all the rocks are coming out. Yeah, Tony Rock was amazing. But what happened was Ben Lyons texted me afterwards and says that he actually knows Chris Rock's brother. So I don't know if it's Tony Rock or there's another Rock, but Lyons said to me, he's like, I'm actually good friends with him. I'm like, wait, what? I'm like, you were, you were doing your best to show compassion to Will Smith, and yet you were friends with his brother. He texted me, he goes, Chris Rock's brother is a good friend of mine. We hosted the warm-up together for Turner slash NBA TV for two years. So maybe we'll get Chris Rock's brother at some point through Ben Lines. It's pretty crazy. Let's put, go down a fictional scenario. Chris Rock is writing a bit where, where Will Smith slaps him. The way he writes this joke and says it on stage is Will Smith walks away and he goes, Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. And that's what he actually did in real life when it happened. That's how brilliant he is. That would be th that would be the way he would write the bit of him, Will Smith walking away. And, wow, Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. And that is what he actually did in real time yeah. reacting. Like, let me get a laugh here. What can I say? Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Even the way he was able to recover, he goes, that was just the greatest night in the history of television. Like, that's, yeah. that's just a pretty good line. Because it honestly makes me sad, the clip, because you're seeing all the angles now. There's clips of, like, just Jada during it. They're showing, if they, there's a camera angle of Chris Rock during Questlove's speech, and you can just see his mind racing a thousand miles an hour. Like, oh my God, this is going to be a thing. Like, you could just see the wheels turning of, okay, I just got smacked on the Oscars, and yep, yep, this is going to be a thing. I almost felt bad for him. It was crazy. And nothing more. We're still talking nothing, about it. This, this nothing is so more wild. humiliating than a slap, like a punch. Then uh, Will Smith is going to prison. Like, dude, a you spit, can't just punch a, a guy. A spit like would have been more disrespectful. Like if he just walked up. <laughs> <laughs> a spit would be, but a slap is just like, dude, I, a dude slaps another man like that is. It's still yeah. shocking to think about. Uh, and then walks off and like flips his jacket back like he's an action yeah, star. Yeah, big tough guy over there. And by the way, <laughs> to all those wonders, because like, oh, Will Smith resigned from the Academy. I'm like, it means nothing. You can still be nominated for an Oscar. You can still uh, you just don't win vote, an Academy right? Yeah, you just can't vote. So like, Congratulations. Thanks. Well, we'll see yeah. what the Academy actually does. I, mean, I know Ben and I originally said we wouldn't think Will would apologize. Uh, he did apologize via Instagram with, I would say, a very crafted, carefully oh, practiced That publicist. first statement. You're like, oh, the first statement is anti-violence. This yeah. wasn't by a PR team. Exactly. So let's actually see <laughs>
the real apology if he actually calls Chris Rock or what happens there. And, and as far as the academy, I don't know. Originally, I kept saying nothing would happen. Now I'm like, hmm. To your point, it's been such a talking point. I think he might get suspended for a year. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. That's going to happen. It won't take away the Oscar, though, no, right? No, that, that would, would be. He's definitely keeping the Oscar. But maybe a suspension. Yeah. All right, let's talk about one of my favorite movies of all time. It's uh, celebrating its 15th anniversary this December. It's called There Will Be Blood. It's from Paul Thomas Anderson. The reason I want to talk about it was P.T. Anderson spoiler had a alert. Sorry? The movie title's a spoiler alert. Yeah, that is true. He he said when, when he was writing it, he goes, uh, somebody asked him where the title come from. He goes, I just thought it was an awesome title. Like, uh, sometimes these things just come to you. I'm like, There Will Be Blood. I'm like, that's a good title. I'm like, it damn sure is. I mentioned it because P.T. Anderson looked like he might win an Academy Award for Licorice Pizza. He was nominated for Best Original Screenplay and a Blues and Kenneth Branagh, which I did think was the right decision. Although P.T. Anderson is one of my favorite filmmakers. The fact he's been nominated, I believe, seven times by the Academy. One of these days he's going to win an Oscar, and he probably should have won an Oscar for The Ruby Blood. Now, it was a very tough year because it was that or No Country for Old Men, which I recently discussed here on the podcast. And No Country is one of the Coen Brothers' best films. And so I really don't have many issues with the fact that one Best Picture and Best Director, and, and they got their moment in the sun. But God, I wish they could have split the Oscars. The Ruby Blood is a remarkable film. If you've never seen it, you should watch it right now. TCM just aired it the other night. It's a story of family, religion, hatred, oil, and madness, focusing on a turn-of-the-century prospector in his early days of the business. It's a movie that's revered within the industry. Quentin Tarantino, as a matter of fact, did a video, which I believe is readily available on YouTube, where he talks about he loves the film. And he said, what I love about it is the opening. It's just, again, talking about a man at work, the first 10 minutes is just a guy digging. Like, he's just digging for oil. And then later... You see him, like, with the prize, and you're like, man, this guy crawled across the desert just to go get his prize. Okay, this is a different level of devotion and ambition. And then you hear Daniel Day-Lewis speaking. As much as I love Stu Gatz, as I've said to him, I go, you always crush Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm like, how about the Ruby Blood? Like, have you ever seen this movie? He's never seen it. Because I'm like, dude, if you see this movie, you will love this actor. He is a great, great actor. Even my brother, who does not like the movie, I think would still admit it's a great performance. And once you start hearing his voice, he's channeling John Huston, the great director, my friend and my partner, H.W. Uh, it does not obviously sound like Daniel Day-Lewis, the British man, but he's able to translate transform himself. And what you learn about this prospector is he's very single-minded and focused on one thing, oil. He is an oil man. He's got this kid with him, the kid who he basically adopted after, while they were digging for some oil, his actual father falls to his death. And so Daniel Day-Lewis takes care of this kid, and it seems like a very sweet relationship. Uh, if you could call it sweet, basically the fact that dad just wants to get some money and some oil and this kid kind of tails after him. So it's an unusual relationship. But I love the fact the story is so well-rooted in details. You know, I, I would love to read the book one day. It's written by Upton Sinclair and it's simply called Oil. But it brings you back to that time where the wild, wild west was untamed. People were trying to get oil, trying to build themselves up. And this guy is an oil man. Of course, he has an adversary played by the terrific actor. And all along, we've been pronouncing his name wrong. Every single person has been saying his name is Paul Dano. I just read an article about him. It's actually pronounced Dano. It said it's pronounced, it rhymes with Drano. Paul Dano, who you're currently right now seeing in The Batman, uh, you know, lighting it up as the Riddler. So Paul Dano plays his nemesis in the film. He plays Paul Sunday, who is a preacher who literally is a thorn in the side of Daniel Plainview's character. Uh, their adversary relationship is the stuff of legend, the way that they go at each other, the fact that... Um, you know, Dano's character is using religion, and Daniel Day-Lewis has no time for that. It's basically poisoning his oil wells. Um, but at one point where he realizes he's desperate for absolution, and again, if you've never seen the movie, just Google the scene, I've abandoned my son. When Dano starts giving him a baptism, 
and starts, speaking of slaps, just starts slapping Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> as hard as he can. Starts dunking him in the water, right? As he's baptizing him, just relishing in the moment. The way that Day-Lewis just looks at him, this withering glare, like, I'm going to get you back one day. Like, I, I know you think you're a prophet. You think you're a man of God. I'm going to get you back one day, buddy. The way the two of them go at each other. One scene, Daniel Day-Lewis is just rubbing mud in his face. But honestly, just the look of the film is amazing. Judd Apatow, we're going to hope to give the podcast at some point, he hosted the DGAs. That's the Director Guild's, Director's Guild Awards. And he had Paul Thomas Anderson on there. Really funny bits. If you follow Judd Apatow on social, he had Spielberg and he had Paul Thomas Anderson. He had a bunch of different directors. And to P.T. Anderson, he said, he goes, how come your movies always look so good and my movies look like Saved by the Bell? He's like, wait, what is it about your movie? Like, how do you make your movies look so good? And it's, it's true. If you watch even 10 minutes of The Way Blood, you go, man, it's just it's such a gorgeous What do you say? Film. I think he kind of laughed it off, and he kind of made a joke. But I, I would love him to actually give an oh, like he starts talking about film stock. He's like, well, you know, I shoot my films to be in seventy millimeter, and then Judd's like, well, I'm not really sure what that means. He's like, well, I think that's your first problem. Like, if you use long lenses and certain things to kind of get the best of the look, but um, it's direct, director of photography is Robert Ellsmith, who did win an Academy Award for the film. The movie won two Oscars. I mentioned the fact it didn't win the big ones because of No Country for Old Men, but it won Best Actor for Daniel Day-Lewis. This is a guy who is the only actor in the history of the world to win three Academy Awards for Best Actor. My Left Foot, Lincoln, and There Will Be Blood. And it'd be tough to find three more dissimilar films. Really? One is about, no yeah. one else has won three. That's no one wild. else has ever won three Best Actor Awards, which is <laughs> amazing to think about. And, I mean... My Left Foot is about, you know, a handicapped individual who literally paints with his left foot. It's a complete physical transformation. Uh, Lincoln, he's playing the beloved president for many people. High, reedy voice, looks a lot taller than he is. And then this movie, he plays a deranged oil man who's hell-bent on greed and capitalism. I mean, it's uh, remarkable to show his range of acting. And um, he wins for Best Actor, deservedly so. Ellsworth wins for Cinematography. And the movie is just so studied and just so subtle and just builds and builds towards a climax. And the climax, some might argue, goes way, way over the top. I would say I think it really delivers. After kind of being a powder keg of emotion, it finally just opens that thing up and, and just the emotion goes flying. And hence the title, There Will Be Blood. A couple of reviews for you. Namrati Joshi of Outlook. The sprawling, dark epic hinges on atmospherics and the moody air. It's heightened further by the ominous music, especially in the long, wordless opening sequence set in the minds of man pitted against nature. The score, by the way, is from Johnny Greenwood. You know him from Radiohead. Now quite popular doing a lot of uh, movie scores. He did Power of the Dog. He did Phantom Thread for Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, starred in that as well. But this was the first time, like, oh, the guy from Radiohead, pretty good movie score. That was 15 years ago. Uh, Deborah Ross, The Spectator, Day-Lewis's performance will simply have you like a fever you can't shift. The landscapes are hard and big, but he skates through them as if they were no more than your Uncle Stan's allotments. The best compliment I could play to There Will Be Blood, uh, the New York Times a couple of years ago ran their best film so far the 21st century. I think it came out a couple of years ago. Let's say 2020, right? The first 20 years of the century. Number one film was There Will Be Blood. And they were like, wow. it's, it's just an absolute epic film. I'm wondering how such a celebrated movie seems to be consensus. Most people find this to be a good movie at least yes. your brother finds it his one of his least favorite like what is what's what does your brother think of it that's so bad i think he just finds it really boring okay yeah he's just like he's like nothing happens like the guy until the end when all that energy comes yeah. out he just doesn't like I, the yeah, i think the he really likes the end i mean the, i don't know how you wouldn't like the end the ending is incredible i drink your milkshake i drink it up <laughs> drainage <laughs> I just, wow. <laughs> because even my wife said to me, she goes, it's not like the most accessible film. She goes, if you tried to sell the Roy Blood to somebody, you go, what's it about? It's about an oil man, and he's digging for oil, and there's this preacher that's against him. He's got this little kid, and it's about father and son. You go, 
Like it's not one of those films that's big on plot. But if you love, back to our uh, your, your famous review, yeah, yeah. less. <laughs> if you're like Cody and Claire Atkins, less plot, more character, then you're gonna like this film. He's one of the most misanthropic central characters ever in a film. Like at one point, a character shows up who's allegedly his brother, and he says, "I look at people and I see nothing worth liking." Like what an amazing line! That that yeah. is the lead of the movie. I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. I kind of, I kind of want to hear your wife's reviews now. What did she say? She said it was very uh, movie, yeah, I, I, cinephile I term. She used. It what was, was actually, it? It was my word. It wasn't her. I think she just said <laughs> it's not the kind of way a lot of people would like. And I'm like, okay. So I, I but the way I, you yeah, said it, I was like, that's impressive by too. her. It's not the most accessible film. Oh, I was like, wow. That's just, we need to get her. Maybe a little, <laughs> maybe a little uh, husband wife uh, yeah, movie no, no, review she's, podcast. She's not going to be as articulate as me. Let's be honest. She's just like, eh. like she. For the record, she does love the Roy Blood, which is why I love her. We watch. I can relate to not being our. Articulate, but, but I bet like, she's much more articulate. But she was like, my brother wouldn't like it. My sister wouldn't like it. Your brother doesn't like it. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, screw him. It's a great film. <laughs> you go get your own podcast. Tell me what you like. Uh. This is my podcast. We do what we like. Um, I can't wait till my brother listens. He listens to every pod. He'll, he'll, he'll give us specific details why he thinks this movie sucks. Uh, but I love it, and I love it so much. Check out The Roy Blood if you haven't seen it. It was airing on TCM the other night. It's easily available on streaming. 15th anniversary this December. Thanks once again to Mime Bialik. Uh, thank you to everybody for listening. Obviously, thanks to Chris Cody. You may have noticed uh, new time now. So we're going to record these on Monday. They come out on Tuesday. I will give you more time to listen. I like Chris's thought process, which is weekends. People don't listen as much. So new day, same great podcast, right? Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. I think it's going to be good for us. I think the audience now will have more time in their work week to listen. It's just a win-win for everybody. Uh, and all the movies come out on the weekends, and we can talk about them right after the weekend. It's, you know. Yeah. It works all the way Great. around. Uh, next week, Age of Cage author. We're going to talk a lot about Nicolas Cage. If you're a Nicolas Cage fan, you're going to love this podcast. Mike Ryan's going to be all over it, plus new films as well. Uh, and also, we're going to talk, about, I think two weeks from now, we're going to talk about Winning Time because we're five episodes in now. I know Chris is watching as well, so yeah. you and I are both going to dive into Winning Time. I thought the last episode was great. About Cream with Jabbar, so I'm sure. too behind, but I'll be caught up by then. Caught up in time. Thank you so much for checking out Cinephiles. Always spread the word Cinephile Pod. Admin S. Ferk, and I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.